Real Talk listeners, welcome back. We are rolling through this series right now. We're talking about different aspects in talent acquisition, aka recruiting, depending on how you talk through it. We have Michelle here with me, obviously, but we have a special guest. I want to take a moment before we kind of jump in and have her introduce herself. Valerie, love it. So glad you could join us today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. As you said, my name is Valerie. I am originally from Indiana. I started off my career in HR. So that's why I love what you're doing and the tips that you share. And after I was working for a while, I was still young. So I I took off. I did a giant backpacking trip across Africa. So I went from Cape Town to Cairo by myself with a backpack and a tent. I ended up living in Ethiopia for eight years after that. And I was very involved with outsourcing, helping Ethiopia become an outsourcing hub. And I just moved back to the US. I'm now based in Pittsburgh and I connect global companies with talent in Africa. Exciting. Well, we're ready to jump right into it. And it sounds like you've had a lot of travel experience, which I need to connect with you on on a whole another level so I can get some tips and tricks on where to go. But I'm going to turn it over to Michelle because I know she's super excited to ask some questions on us. I love being like you do not know, but Maria, I'm like you as well. When you started talking about backpacking and just kind of you by yourself in a backpack in a tent, it actually reminds me of one of our podcasts with Nikki Lerner, who is a consultant that tries to help global companies really, truly integrate a diversity and inclusion policy from top to the bottom. And one of her pieces of advice was get out of your comfort zone. And she was like, it's something that you can do immediately. You know, instead of buying your stuff from your local grocery store, go down the street to a Hispanic grocery store, kind of put, or when you're having dinner and you invite all your friends, look around and see if different cultures are represented. And if not, start to layer them in. It would be a fun conversation to talk about how that immersion really helped you gain new perspective. Something for a future topic. Yes, definitely. I really want to talk to you about sourcing. And for me, the way that this conversation sort of links into our previous conversations is specifically how we're starting to encourage organizations to be truly open with that remote workforce and to really look at... Marie and I have been believers of remote work. We've done remote work since the late, I'm going to say 1900s. Man, that feels like a long time ago. (laughs) Feels like a different... Anyway, sorry, guys, moving on. We've been doing it for a while. And so we know that it can be done successfully. Now we have worked remotely with managers who aren't good at it. So we know some of the hiccups and hangups in it. But one of the things that truly stands out for me when you're willing to jump from an office-based working environment to a remote-based work environment is you literally open up the talent pool. It becomes endless. In fact, to the point of this conversation, it becomes international. Before, you were lucky you could get someone to commute 30 minutes to come to work unless you're in LA or DC. But now with a remote workforce, we can really 
with internet access, a telephone, a computer, you can go around the entire world. So I'd really like to start with what is your wheelhouse, which is linking or connecting people to international resources and why that outsourcing is smart when it comes to filling critical positions. There's so many answers to it. So like you said, when you outsource internationally, you do have the opportunity to get so many more viable candidates. And I think the the stereotype about sourcing talent from Africa is everyone wonders like, are the programmers just as good? Do they speak good English? Like they have those kind of questions rise up. And I've just been really proud to see that developers are joining teams all throughout US companies and contributing and leading tasks and projects and doing really, really well. One of the most growing sectors in Ethiopia is actually cold calling. So the next telemarketer who calls you could be an Ethiopian. And when I look at the the Ethiopian team versus their in-house American team, they're doing just as good, if not better. So I think one of the best reasons to do it is you just get really good talent that's very motivated, will work the same U.S. hours that you want, will show up for the daily stand-ups. And most of the time, it's also more affordable. So if you are a new company or wanting to provide more customer support or more features on your app and you just need more team members, but you might not have the the revenue to do so, outsourcing to a country like Ethiopia will allow you to hire more team members and help your customers faster. So let's actually, there's a couple things you said there, and I want to dig into them a little bit deeper so that we can give these guys tips. I think you nailed it with kind of one of the first I'm going to call it pauses or concerns, and it's the communication barrier, right? Organizations go, but what if? And so how do we help people overcome that they're not going to speak English barrier, if you will? I mean, I would say in Ethiopia, especially where we tend to source the most talent from, English is one of their national languages. They Everyone speaks it. I think from kindergarten on, they take English in school and their high school and colleges are completely in English. I just on a random note, I would say all of my friends in Ethiopia, their favorite TV show is Friends. So, I mean, they're like watching the Hollywood movies, they're watching the shows. In fact, Ethiopians tend to lean towards more of an American accent. And everywhere you go, English is the language that everyone speaks. So even when I was traveling in different African countries, everywhere I went, I found someone who spoke good English. Communication. I don't think it's actually an issue uh, when it comes to language barriers. I would agree with you. I think it's this fear that it could be. And then I'm a big believer that fear is often, particularly things with like diversity inclusion, it just becomes your excuse or your crutch. And so Uh we started with that fear around it. But instead of researching the fear to understand if it was even valid, we create it as our crutch or a barrier. I see that fear a lot. The other fear I always hear HR people say to me is we're not equipped to hire or deal with foreign labor laws. One of the things we do is that we have companies use our US company and then we work on the back end to make sure we're legal in Ethiopia with the right partners. So my question is always like, well, if you're open to any consultant, like we build the same way any other consultant would. So I think it's really taking the time to explore these fears about outsourcing. Because like you said, once you start to explore them, it's just fear and it's really not founded on anything really valid at the end at the end of the day. And when you look at even within the United States, if you're looking at 
employees within the United States, even going outside of one state, you always have to pause and look at labor laws. Most Mm -hmm. what Marie and I have found in uh, both as consultants and in our previous careers is that it's often easier to start with the most stringent labor laws in the United States. That tends to be California in a lot of cases. So you look at California and then you just compare, are there any differences? And what I found with really great organizations is that they don't then go in and necessarily build their policies different depending on what you live. They decide to let everyone live by that law that was effective. So, you know, I always use California for an example because it's a great example. California has some very specific expectations around when someone can take a lunch, when they can start and by the time they finish. And so instead of dividing it up and saying, if you are in Minnesota, this is your law. If you're in California, this is your law. We create one policy that fits the toughest standard. That's so smart. That's really interesting to see that. What's interesting is when you look at most countries or states' labor laws, they really have written those labor laws to protect the employees. And so how hard is it for a company to step back and say, am I doing the right thing for my employees? Then let's follow this standard. But to your point, you can absolutely start with that one base and then just build from there. Most companies have a handbook with an appendix that says things like, unless you are employed in this country or this state, and then refer to appendix blank. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think what I found is that sometimes when certain people in the organization push back, if I keep working with the company, there's someone else in the company who has been actively trying to outsource and just couldn't find the right candidate. Often, if you're large enough, there is an initiative to outsource because of the cost alone makes it really enticing to do. So I think it's just, you know, if one person says no, it's finding out who else in your company might be for it and continuing the conversation with them. And yeah, once you get that, once you get that one department or that one group that'll say yes, everyone else sees that success and it grows from there. Absolutely. So you said cold calling, which for the record is not my favorite thing to do in the world. It's a rough job. The Ethiopians that we'd work with, they would, they'll call 200 people a day and their goal is to get one person a day to say yes. So just one warm lead. And then out of that, maybe one or two a month actually turn into a client or a customer. So it's a rough job. They have to be really good at hearing the word no. But for the US company who hires them, it's still a really valid marketing and sales technique because just closing one customer 10 times pays off the cost of hiring a telemarketer. Yeah, I'm surprised that telemarketing still works in today's age, but I've seen a lot of good success from it. I have to tell you, that was one of my temp jobs when I was in college. In fact, like they would record our calls and mm-hmm. every in my manager's office. And they would be like, why do you just accept no as the answer? And I'm like, because they said no, that's why. Hard. But I do like to say that anyone who starts off in cold calling, like the rest of your career is so bright because if you can do cold calling, you can do anything. It really builds good skills. It does. It, it absolutely, and it definitely builds that confidence around how do I speak towards why you should talk to us, right? And so mm-hmm. set 
up for a great sales career if you're able to get through that process for sure. Exactly. And I think one thing you mentioned is, you know, why should someone kind of outsource to Ethiopia and typically the client I'm thinking of who had cold callers in Ethiopia. I remember when their in-house team all got COVID and their whole team was out. And so the only sales they had coming in were from their remote team. It goes to show you that having a team that's like based abroad will help you because you don't know when the next virus comes or something comes up. And it's really nice to have another team that's not impacted by that. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. What other positions could someone look for if they were looking for outsourcing internationally or sourcing internationally? The fastest thing I see are developers, level one technicians, customer care support is growing really fast in Ethiopia. And I placed personally a lot of executive assistants and virtual assistants. And in all of those positions, what you are talking about, and I know there was, there absolutely was a day and a time where you had all of your cold calls in computer cubicles in one room, but that's not even the world we necessarily live in anymore. So computer, telephone, internet access, and we're all safe. Exactly. That's all you really need in today's age. Exactly. So what are some tips? Like if you want someone to just get started, let's say... What would you have someone or recommend as like a a one, two, three to get started in sourcing? I always have people sign up for a 30-day trial. So whether you work with us or someone else, I think it's really helpful because it's so scary to outsource or to hire someone who's a continent away. I would say make sure you you start with a trial. So that way you give yourself 30 days to see how it's going. Also, just give yourself the ability to to hire or to pick the candidate. So instead of just going with whoever they place you from, you know, we like to say, just let our candidate apply for the job. Let them be like any other applicant. And so that way you really are choosing someone that you feel is the best. And then you have a 30-day trial. So you already feel a lot more assured that like nothing can go too wrong in 30 days. And then the third thing is just a really good onboarding process. I don't like to say... I think outsourcing sounds really cold. It sounds like it's someone distant doing something that you have no control over. So I really focus on it's just a remote team member who's just based somewhere else. And your own in-house team member could be there as well if they're on vacation and you wouldn't even know. Just treat them the same way you would have them do the daily stand-ups, have them work whatever time zone you're in. And I was telling you earlier about how I listened to your onboarding episodes and I found them really, really helpful. So just having a good onboarding process. And generally helpful. I want to reiterate what you said about them being part of the process. Throughout my career, I have been a temp, I have been a contractor, and I've been in kind of those outsourced roles. And in the organizations where I step up and give more, it's always in the organizations where they treat me exactly like they treat a full time hire that they would have hired directly onto their team. I felt no different. I was treated no different. My opinions were valued exactly the same way. And it did change the level of ownership that I had for the quality of my job. And it definitely changes the engagement that I had as I went through the process. That's how you want to think about it. I would never tell you to just hire a developer and let them work on it. They need to be reporting to your tech team. And If it's a salesperson or customer support person, they should be in all your meetings. Like all of that should be on Zoom and they should be joining. 
And then when you do it like that, it it works like any other remote team member. And I think most people will be really surprised how nice it is to show up on a Zoom call and see people from all over the world, part of your team and contributing to something bigger together. So Valerie, you mentioned earlier, it's important to have even internationally sourced employees go through the same application process as everyone else. If this is the first time an organization has sourced internationally, what are some things that we should consider as it relates to the job description or the expectations? I always make sure on the back end that I'm working with the talent to make sure that they know they're working U.S. hours. So if I was a U.S. company, I would say, we'll hire abroad, but you're working EST or whatever time zone you're in. Laying out the holidays. Some companies allow, like if you had an Ethiopian to take off Ethiopian holidays, others only let them take off American holidays. And I think either is fine as long as you kind of spell out the rules. And then on my end, I always make sure that anyone we hire or that is hired has good internet and good electricity because those are kind of real questions you have to ask working with talent who's in an African country. So making sure that they do have access to those so that they can show up fully. I don't think it's as different as it seems. The first person you hire who's, let's say, based in Rwanda, it's going to seem so different. It's like a different process for you. But once you do it, you realize like at the end of the day, it's just people. People are the same everywhere. And once you start hiring abroad, you're going to start to see the the benefits of it. And it becomes like just any other position. You just want those clear expectations laid out. You know, one of my favorite things about this conversation is that you have made this process so simple by kind of tearing down what is, again, I'm going to say it, what has become excuses for not looking outside of the norm and you've made it feel super simple. So I'm going to ask you if we can do it on just three more topics. Okay. Okay. So the next one, now that we have some really great candidates and we've hired them, they're part of our team. Do you have any tips that you have learned? And I know Maria has a ton because she deals with international direct employees herself, but what do you suggest from kind of that meeting stand up or the huddles to make sure people feel included? My husband's a remote worker based here. He's Ethiopian though. So, I mean, I see him join like the trivia games on Friday or like those extra things. I don't know. I think video calls are really nice and having the video on for Zoom instead of just audio, I think makes a difference when you can just see someone's face. I think that's helpful. I guess the perspective is a little bit different because I think in the U.S., a candidate has a lot of job opportunities. So they are a little bit more picky about wanting to feel like they're part of a company. But when I was living in Ethiopia, there's just not as many job opportunities, not as many good ones. And so when I talk to Ethiopians, they're just really happy to get a job offer and to be placed in a U.S. company. It's a really good opportunity and they make double, triple, quadruple their salary than what they would have made. So I don't know if you need as many things to retain them because they're pretty motivated because it's something that they can't find locally, unfortunately. We have talked about how the bells and whistles sometimes become the distraction. Particularly, we've talked about how engagement is, it is very unique to the person hire. And when you have those opportunities for the first time, engagement really just becomes the fact that you have the opportunity. I think they just want the opportunity. And when I talk to talent, they just want to know, what do I have to do? They're very 
conscientious and they want to do a good job. So just having a good training process, so they feel like they're doing their tasks right. And like what we've talked before about just keeping them busy. You don't want to start a job and not feel like you're contributing. So I would focus more on just helping them become as successful in the job as possible. And I think that's when you're going to find a really good synergy. I think you're going to start to find that with a lot of generations, regardless of the country, is that they're really starting to look for just how do you develop me and keep me busy and reward me when I'm great and mm-hmm. move me or correct me if I'm off base so that I can get better. You sort of touched on that. One of the next things I wanted to talk about. So I want to go into this a little bit more, the idea of the impact, um, looking at it specifically from kind of that global social impact. I want to look at it from the employee's perspective, but also that benefit to the employer. So what have you seen in your experience as the wins from sourcing internationally? I'm glad you said that because the social impact that got me started in this, my background's in social work. So when I first was traveling the African countries and living in Ethiopia, I was thinking I was going to work in NGOs and nonprofits and do all these charities. And then I lived there and I realized that so many of these projects and donations really don't work. Sometimes they actually create a negative impact. And what I found was creating the the best impact in African communities is when there are jobs and good paying jobs. And not only does that reduce poverty, it helps women when women are making money. It reduces political and ethnic tension. So I switched from social work nonprofits into business and trying to help create as many jobs as I could. So I think the biggest social impact it creates in African communities is that you have really good wages. And when people are making good money, their kids are going to good schools, they're getting health and nutrition, and that helps the next generation as well. One thing I also like is whenever I place a virtual assistant to like, let's say a female CEO that's in the US or Europe, I think it's amazing for the CEO to now have support and have more time to create and not do the task. But I love seeing how the virtual assistant is growing in a way that she probably wouldn't have grown. She's getting access to be with a CEO of like a major company and how that like takes like a 25 year old Ethiopian with not a lot of career experience. And it just like takes her, like it launches her career because she learns so much faster. So that's also, you know, a really cool social impact. I guess the last thing I would say is I see a lot of US companies who do want to create a social impact. And so they'll donate clothes or materials, or they'll send their team members on a week to Africa or something. And just living on the continent for so long, I see how much of that does not work. So I think for the US company that is socially minded, if they if they really want to create a social impact, there's nothing they can do better than just hiring someone who's in an emerging country who would otherwise not have the opportunity. That creates a social impact that they want to create, but 10 times more. That might be one of the best pieces of advice we've ever gotten here and a great way to look at it. You nailed it that companies are trying to make a difference. And we have found that as newer generations enter the workforce, they're actually demanding that companies do something good back. And even ratting out those companies on social media that don't do good and do bad instead. And so... To hear from your experience, having truly lived through it, the difference between I'm going to send you a few hundred dollars worth of clothes versus I'm going to give you a job that gives you the skill to continue Mm -hmm. to grow, make more money, support yourself, your family, 
and then your own community. That's a great way of looking at it that I'm not sure most people think about. I don't think a lot of companies look at it like that because maybe they're not aware of how so many of these charities probably aren't doing the good. But I have recently touched base with a lot of faith-based organizations that had programs in an African country. And I would say they're very open to hiring from that country as well. So they kind of see it as like a win-win, like they get a good candidate that they couldn't, they weren't able to find locally. And then on top of that, it's helping fulfill their mission to reduce poverty in Ethiopia or Kenya. So I really enjoy working with those companies who truly get it and get what we're trying to do. So that's been refreshing to see. So Valerie, if someone wants to start dipping their toe in, make that 30-day commitment that you recommended, how would they get in touch with you and get started? They can come to our website, which is cradle.com, C-R-D-L-E, or you can send me an email at valerie at cradle.com. And basically, we usually just start with a conversation to see what are your needs and see if we think we can match someone. And if we do, we just present candidates to you and your HR and your hiring team. And if any of them look good, then they just start the 30-day pilots. And then even after that, we make it super easy. So we say it's like a 30-day written notice if you don't want to continue anymore. And we make it really easy so that people want to say yes. But I am very proud to say that no one has ever actually canceled or stopped. (laughs) So it feels really nice to see that we're successful in who we place. That is a good statistic to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us, Valerie. We are super excited and um, look forward to having you back to talk more with us about the journey of talent acquisition and sourcing. So feel free to come back to Real Talk anytime. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Bye, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>